Welcome to Inside the Heart.tv podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Umberto Boncristian. In this podcast, we talk about the teachings of the most successful society in natural history, the honeybees. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner and an advanced beekeeper or just curious about honeybees. Here, you'll find great conversations to educate and entertain yourself about this wonderful insect. From honeybee biology to how to make money with honeybees, you won't miss anything here. Inside the Hive.tv podcast is brought to you by our fans on Patreon. On Patreon, you can access all episodes before anybody else and exclusive content, like behind-the-scenes videos, live streams, and more. If you want to learn more about honeybees and help me to make more content about honeybees to everybody, please visit patreon.com slash TV and join our community. In today's conversation, I had the pleasure to talk with Dr. James Knight from the University of California in San Diego about his latest research published in the prestigious journal Science. The article covered a very interesting new subject about the honeybee society, social learning. Apparently, honeybees, the older bees, need to teach the young bees how to dance, and without this ability, the bees would not be the society they are today. We also talk about how pesticides might be damaging these learning abilities and creating problems for the honeybees. Dr. Nye was also very generous to give us a full overview about honeybee communications and more. And I hope you enjoy. Professor, welcome to the show. It is a pleasure and an honor to have you here. I have requests from my audience to bring you here for a long time. And I, this is finally happening and I'm very happy for that. How are you today? Very good, thank you. And it's wonderful to be able to join you, and I really look forward to our conversation. You recently published a paper, very interesting paper in a very prestigious journal, Science. I'd love you to give a little introduction about this article with us after you tell me a little bit how you get into the bees. What's your background and how you get into the bees? I'm, I'm Really curious to know a little bit more about that. Sure. So uh, it's a question people often ask me. When I was an undergraduate, I was trying different things, and I took a course in animal behavior and communication that was taught by Bert Holdobler at the time, who was famous for his work on social ants. And I decided that I, when I learned about the honeybee communication system and the waggle dance, which ironically is what this paper is about, I decided that I wanted to study it. I wanted to learn more. I thought it was unbelievable that an animal like a bee, or actually any animal, would have a language that was this complicated. So I did a summer research project, and I was trained in how to work with bees and train them to feeders by Professor Tom Seeley from Cornell University. And I then became a graduate student in his lab. So that's how I got started. Wow. It's something that get attention of everybody about is I think is one of the m most magnets about how people get into bees is to understand their society, how they communicate is so, it's so impressive and interesting. I think is one of the main magnets that attract people to, to honeybees and, and behavioral. Tell me a little bit about this publication, because this is, this is new to me. Apparently, the bees teaching the other bees, they need the older bees. Tell me a little bit more about that. Right. So um, the collaborators uh, from China, from the Chinese Academy of Science in Kunming, um, doctor, led by Dr. Ken Tan, were interested, along with me, in this question. 
why do we need to learn a language? You know, bees have a really complicated language. Is it possible that they just have it completely genetically encoded, or do they need to learn in order to produce a waggle dance? This is a question that many people have asked me over the years. But I think the bigger question we were interested in is, why is it that some animals need to learn language, humans, for example, or even naked mole rats or canaries can learn parts of their communication system, but many other animals don't have to learn it at all. Imagine if you were born being able to speak Portuguese or English or Chinese, it would be much more convenient. But the, the answers as to why it's important to learn usually come down to two reasons. Number one, you want to adapt to your environment. So, for example, you might, as a bird, live in an environment where you have different acoustic parameters. And so you would want to optimize your communication so that your vocalizations could spread farther and be less distorted in that environment. So that's a good example of why you would need to learn. You can't exactly predict where you're going to be born. The second reason is that communication can be very complicated. If we think about how canaries communicate or many other animals, it requires a lot of fine muscle control. It requires the refinement of neural pathways between the vocal tract and the brain. And if you think about honeybees, they have a really commu complex communication system of the waggle dance, which we'll explain in, in a moment. So it's quite possible that for either or both of these reasons, honeybees might need to learn how to communicate from bees that are already older and more experienced. Wow. And how, how you do that? How you demonstrate such things? It's quite interesting, the design that, of that scientific article. So we were following up on observations by other researchers that showed that when a honeybee, and, and this requires monitoring a bee throughout its lifetime, which is possible now with video tracking and RFID, they typically tend to follow older experienced bees as they get older before they themselves begin foraging. Now, uh, we should realize that how honeybees work, their division of labor is based on how old they are. They start out as nurse bees, and as they get older, they transition to become foragers. So when they start becoming foragers, one of the signs is they become very interested in waggle dances. Maybe that's just because they're interested in foraging, but maybe it's because they're learning how to waggle dance. So for the experiment, we had to create two different kinds of colonies, experimental and control. In the experimental colonies, we created what's called a single cohort colony. All the bees are the same age. They were large colonies. They had thousands of bees. They had plenty of food. So everything was fine, and they also had a queen, but they were all the same age in the experimental colony. In the control colony, same number of bees, same amount of food, also had a queen, and the same genetic background, meaning that we actually took a source colony and then split it into two, which is very important, but they had bees of all ages, so they could learn from older bees, whereas in the experimental colony, everybody was the same age. So it's kind of like growing up without any teachers, everybody has to go along at the same rate. What you then have to do is you have to have a lot of help and you have to watch the bees in the colony. Not every bee in the colony, but we individually painted on their thorax, on the back, different colors, 200 bees. So we were able to track these 200 bees, and when a bee is young and a nurse bee, it tends to hang around inside the comb. But as it gets older, 
it displays more interest in moving towards the nest entrance, eventually starting to fly out and beginning to forage. So in the experimental colonies, we watch these bees every day throughout the day. And when the first bees started to be interested in moving to the colony entrance, begin the part of their life that they have as foragers, we were able to immediately train them to a feeder. Now, this occurred at nine to 10 days of age in both the experimental and the control colonies, which was great. The difference was that in the control colonies at around this age, they were also interested in following waggle dancers, which they did. But in the experimental colony, they could never follow any waggle dancers because everybody was the same age. We then trained these bees to a feeder and we looked at their first dances inside the nest when they came back. So we could measure a lot of things about these dances. Um, we can, and we'll explain that in the video, but the dance communicates distance, direction, and food quality. How that works, I'll discuss in a minute, but there can be errors in all of these. Uh, they might communicate the wrong distance. They might communicate the wrong direction. And we could compare the first dances of bees in the experimental colony versus the control colony. And as the, the paper discusses, in fact, the first dances of the experimental colony bees, bees that grew up without any teachers, without any ability to watch older dancers, they were significantly worse at communicating direction, distance, and also this thing called dance disorder. They were not producing a normal orderly dance. Now, the second part of the experiment is we came back 20 days later and we looked at the same bees. Remember, all the bees are marked, so we know the bees that we're looking for. In those 20 days in between, we didn't provide the feeder, so they just had it on the first day they were foraging and then 20 days later. 20 days later, however, they were fully mature foragers. They were actually um, near the end of their adult lifespan as foragers, and we wanted to see, did they improve? In the control bees, nothing changed. They were still as good in their dancing 20 days later when they were fully adults, foragers, as the first time they tried to dance. In the experimental colonies, they also improved. They improved their communication of direction, and they had dances that were more orderly, that had less dance disorder. However, they were unable to communicate the correct distance. In fact, in the experimental colonies, whether they were their first dances or 20 days later when they were much more experienced, they still communicated distances that were too great, which is really interesting. Um, we know that in many languages, there is a critical period where if you don't learn to do it the correct way, that persists for the rest of your lifetime. And it might be that this distance communication error is something that is persisting for the bee's lifetime. Very, very interesting. And the way you summarize thing, I think this is, is an art because I was trying to summarize, uh, try to make it easier for, for people to understand and I was having a lot of trouble. <laughs> Professor, can we show that video and you can guide us about what we were seeing? Sure, that's great. Please, let's start the video and I will go ahead and narrate what we're seeing. All right. So here we see the image of the waggle dancer in the middle and the dance followers that are following it. And here's a video actually showing the bee in the center. It's got the white orange dot on its back. 
and it's being followed by other bees. So this is the classic waggle dance. Now notice that the angle the bee is moving when it's waggling. It's about, I would say, 20 degrees to the left of the vertical position. Here's an example of another waggle dance, and they're all pointing in the same direction because they're all being trained and indicating the same food location. Now these are pretty good waggle dances. Notice that each time she's more or less pointed in the correct direction. The duration of the waggle run communicates food distance. The farther away the food, the longer the waggle run. The direction, as I just said, points to the direction of the food relative to the sun. Now you see other dancers, and notice they're all pointed in about the same direction. Some of them are not exactly in the same direction. This green one is making some errors, but overall, on average, they're pointing in the correct direction. Now, in this experiment, we found that novices are able to learn how to dance better from observing other waggle dancers. And you can see there are a lot of painted bees here. These are all the bees that we were training and following in our experiment. And this is a fun thing because there's a lot going on, so it's good that people can train themselves on looking for the other dancers. So I wanted to mention the amount of time that they should waggle to communicate distance. As I said, if they do it incorrectly or learn somehow incorrectly when they're young, it appears to persist for their entire lifespan. And this could be a form of cultural transmission. In other words, maybe one generation will teach the next the incorrect distance encoding. And I'll go over that um, in a moment. But another reason that maybe bees need to learn is look at the dance floor. So some bees are dancing on this brood comb that's covered with um, this fluffy wax. Some bees are dancing on the open comb. We know that the dance surface uh, influences the accuracy of the dance. So is it possible by practicing, by dancing on these different surfaces, that they're actually learning to dance better over time? That's something, that's an experiment that we hope to, to work and explore in greater detail. So people can now see the waggle dance, and I just wanted to see if you had any questions for your viewers about things that they might want to know about this dance. I was discussing with the people, my patrons. I have the patrons that have discussions, and some of my patrons ask me, and I was quite interested in that question too. Um, because of the nature of the experiment, that uh, we force all the bees to have the same age, and so they basically were kind of forced to mature faster if that would implicate in anything of the results that we've seen. Do, what, what's your thoughts on that? So that's really interesting. Um, however, I should say that in both the experimental colonies and the control colonies, the bees that began their first dances were the same age. They, in both cases, they started dancing when they were nine to 10 days old. So, it, so yes, in general, there were probably some bees that were maturing more rapidly than they would have normally. And that could mean that their brains weren't as correctly developed. But since the control colonies also had bees at the same age, we would expect the same level of cognitive development. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, this is, this is the main question that came from, from my viewers. Uh, the behavior of honeybees are not my background. It's just something that fascinates me. Bring me to the question is, what do we know? 
about the communications of honeybees. What, what do we know about them? How, how they communicate? Pheromones, touching, noise. Tell, tell, can you give us an overview about the current knowledge on honeybee communication? So honeybee communication is multimodal, meaning that honeybees use multiple sensory abilities in their communication system. Uh, we can think about the sense of smell or olfaction, which is largely through the bee antennae. So that is important because there are bee pheromones, like the queen pheromone, but I'm going to focus on senses that are related to the waggle dance and bee communication for foraging. Uh, we know that when honeybees are waggle dancing, they can heat up, and as a result, some odors are released from their body, from the waxes that surround um, their, um, their cuticle, and these odors can be attractive to other bees, similar to a pheromone, but this is actually just the increased release of the odors. And by attracting other bees to follow the waggle dancer, these dance followers can more effectively get the information about where to go. Uh, I just mentioned that bees are warmer when they are recruiting for a good food source. Part of that might be to release these attractive odors, but bees can also sense temperature differences. And so if a bee is a couple of degrees Celsius warmer, she can be more conspicuous inside the colony. And we think that that thermal difference is also attractive to followers. Bees, when they're dancing, if you think about it, are moving very rapidly. They're moving more than one body length a second. And so they're also generating vibrations and sound. The vibrations are fairly weak when they're running on the comb, but they are something that we think that bees within one or two cells of the dancer can probably sense. And again, they may help her to find that dancer. When the bee is in the waggle phase, I know that um, we had turned off the sound, but you will actually hear a sound when she's waggle dancing. And you can look at this in other videos, or maybe you can show a clip later on, but it's kind of a buzzing sound. And that coincides with the waggle phase. So the duration of that sound is correlated with the distance to the food source. And we think that also provides information. But speaking of information and bee senses, how exactly are the followers getting this information? Keep in mind that it's normally completely dark inside the colony, so they can't see each other. So what they are sensing is they could still sense the temperature, they can still smell the body of the dancer, and by the way, the dancer brings back the odor of the flowers that she's been visiting, either if she has pollen, which is stuck on her legs, or in the hairs of her body, so she's conveying that information. She's generating these vibrations. She's generating these airborne sounds that bees very close to the dancer might be able to hear. But the most important thing appears to be touch. If you are looking at those videos, you might notice that the waggle dancer is waggling and the other bees are very close by. And in fact, in some cases, their antenna is being hit by the body of the dancer. So this direct stimulation of the antenna, this tactile sense, is probably very important to sense where the dancer is and the angle of the dancer inside the nest. So that's a review of the basic senses that are involved in honeybee communication. I said earlier that I would tell you how bees communicate food quality. There are two ways. The number of times they repeat this waggle dance. So one waggle circuit is a waggle run and the bee returns around and then she waggles again. That would be the beginning of a second circuit. If a bee really likes a resource like good food, she can do this hundreds of times. And the more she does it, 
the more bees are informed about the location of the good resource. So that's um, a major way in which they communicate food quality. Another thing that people have talked about for a long time, and Carl von Frisch, who discovered the meaning of the waggle dance, noted this as well, is that bees seem to be more excited when the food is better. We now know that they're just faster. So when the bee is waggling, she's largely moving at the same rate, but when she goes back around to waggle again, she can do it slowly or she can do it really fast. And if she does it very rapidly, that return phase duration, it means that she's more excited that the food or the resource is better. So that's basically um, the waggle dance in a nutshell, communicating distance, direction, and food quality. Uh, the waggle dance, of course, can also communicate the location of a nest site, the location of water sources, bee Bees also need water, and propolis or resin that bees collect for their health benefits, but also to help build the colony. Oh, you stimulate my mind, Professor, so much. Uh, because I want to ask you, what happens if we disrupt this communication in, in small doses? And, and I'm and it's something that is a concern of mine, a, a personal concern of mine, because most of the pesticides are targeting neurons or the brain. And, and, and when I look at the registration and how people see safety, I, it's my personal opinion, I feel some gaps in understanding the damage that pesticides of that nature could cause. And I was wondering if I could ask you your thoughts on that matter. Do you think pesticides might be damaging their learning abilities or, or other things that may perhaps the regulatory system are not being able to catch? That's a great point. So the, the regulation is based largely upon studies of mortality. Do bees die or not within 48 hours or so of being treated with a pesticide? But there are long-term effects on survival that we know. Whether you live or die is a very, very coarse way of looking at it because bees need to communicate and they have a lot of sophisticated behaviors. Work that um, I have done with colleagues in my lab and with students has shown that there are multiple effects on bee behaviors, their ability to walk, their ability to dance, and their ability to learn. So many research researchers have now shown that when bees, and these could be stingless bees, uh, or it could be honeybees or even other kinds of bees, when they receive sublethal doses of pesticides, meaning they're not dying right away, their cognition is impaired. They have a reduced ability to learn and they have reduced memory. And this can happen at any life stage. For example, larvae that are fed food by nurse bees that's contaminated with pesticides, when they become adults, they can also have poorer learning. So in many ways, for example, we talk about lead and the effects of lead on human children. Uh, when they grow up, it actually uh, reduces their IQ, reduces their ability to learn, very similar to the problem with pesticides. That fascinates me. Um, it is a really a real concern of myself. Um, and I, I don't know what to do about it, to be honest, other than try to educate people here in this channel and to perhaps convince people at home to, to at least to be informed about the consequences of these chemicals that I see everywhere I go. Uh, when I'm walking my dog, 
I can't get rid of them in my life. So it's a concern of mine. Maybe can I perhaps pick your brain about something else about honeybee societies that is also something that fascinates me. What honeybee societies could teach us about to be a better society? I would like to, to know your thoughts on that. That's really a great point. I think that humans have long admired bees because they live in a largely harmonious society where they're working together and cooperating. Now, there are exceptions to this, of course, but in fact, there's a great deal of cooperation, which we think originally was largely driven by the close genetic relatedness of the bees inside the colony. Um, in fact, of course, even today, we have a society which, is, which has a queen, and then the workers, who are all her daughters, are therefore closely related. I think what we could learn is two things. Yes, they work together, but there are still actually police in the bee society. So um, I, I think the lesson is it, it's not as harmonious as we would think, but some of that disharmony does have a function. So uh, maybe I'll give you an example. Uh, the most important thing in maintaining the society is that the queen produces all the eggs, and so the workers are all her daughters. Now, very rarely, about one in 10,000 eggs, the queen can lay about 2,000 eggs a day, but one in 10,000 eggs, it turns out, if you gen genetically analyze it, is not laid by the queen. It's laid by a worker. So this is called rebel behavior because you're, you're rebelling against the queen by producing your own offspring, not taking care of your brothers and sisters. But this could cause a problem. However, what happens is that there are worker police. So there are bees that are specialized in going around. They can smell the eggs. And from that, they can know whether or not it was laid by queen or by one of her daughters. And they will eat the egg that was laid by the daughter. So you could say, well, one in 10,000 isn't very bad, uh, right? But obviously it is an issue because the worker police have evolved. There are cases where colonies are called anarchistic colonies, meaning that there is anarchy because they have genetic mutations in which worker cheating is much more widespread. And in these colonies, and, and I think maybe this is also something that society could learn, uh, they don't survive. That's because it needs the harmony of every, everybody cooperating together and working to take care of the queen's offspring for it to actually survive. The only way that we are able to maintain these anarchistic colonies, which are fascinating to study, is by artificially feeding them because they are unable to really sustain themselves by providing for their own food. So I think that's one of the things that we can learn from honeybees. Another thing that we could learn is we talk about the queen and, um, you know, it, it's ironic. We are about to have a, a new monarch crowned, right? Uh, King Charles of England. Yeah. But the queen is not sitting there on a throne telling people or bees what to do. In fact, the queen and the workers are in a very symbiotic relationship. When a queen gets old, if she reduces the number of eggs that she can produce, then she can be replaced, which means simply that her daughters will kill her and they will take one of her eggs and raise a new queen. Now, the workers have a lot of say in raising those new queens. They take the eggs, they will actually put them into queen cells. And if the workers decide that the colony has grown very large, and needs to split by swarming and creating two colonies, 
they're going to need two queens. One queen to leave with the swarm and one queen to stay behind. So the queens are producing tooting and quacking sounds, which we think may communicate to the workers that they are about to emerge. The workers have communication signals as well that can apparently tell the queen that they should not yet emerge. Because when a queen emerges, she will go around and kill all the other queens in a normal, non-swarming situation. When the workers decide that they need multiple queens, then they could actually suppress the queens from emerging. So it's not quite la monarchy that we think it is. The workers can kill the queen if she's not a good queen. They can decide when the queens emerge, and they can prevent the queens from killing each other. The other thing that is important to realize is that we know that honeybees have a haplodiploid sex system. What does it mean? Well, basically virgin birth. A female bee, like the worker, can lay sons because she can produce eggs. That egg is not fertilized, it becomes a male. If it's fertilized with a sperm, then it becomes a female. So it's a very interesting sex determination system. What it means is that a queen mates at the beginning of her life, and then she stores the sperm from multiple males inside her body in a spermatheca for the rest of her life. She never goes out again to mate. She, as the egg is passing through the oviduct of the queen, she can decide to open a little muscle and let sperm from the spermatheca contact the egg, fertilize it, and it goes down, and then it becomes a female. So you would think, great, the queen can even control the sex of her offspring. But there's a catch. Drones are bigger than workers. If you've ever looked inside a colony, you'll see the bigger bees with the very large eyes. So drones need to be born in drone comb, which has a larger diameter than worker comb. Who builds the drone comb? The workers. So if the workers decide that they don't want any drones, they can either not build drone comb, or they can fill the drone comb with honey and pollen so the queen can't lay any male eggs. Now you might say, well, how does the queen know if it's a drone comb or a worker comb? When she's going inside the cell to lay an egg, she's actually measuring how big it is with her legs. And she can then know that this is something where she can lay a male egg or something where she can only lay a female egg. So the lesson from that is that there really is a kind of reciprocal relationship between the queen and the workers. It's not just that the queen is telling people what to do or telling the bees what to do. I think that's, that tells a lot about what we need to learn about them. There is no dictatorship or any sort of mandatory, is a, is a cooperation or everybody is united for a for a specific goal of survivorship of that society. It, so I think that tells a lot. Professor, I want to thank you very much for your time. This was a great discussion and congratulations with your uh, publication and good luck to you and your team to, to do much more of that. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been great to chat with you and uh, I look forward to, to seeing the podcast. <laughs> Inside the Hive.tv podcast is brought to you by our fans on Patreon. On Patreon, you can access all episodes before anybody else and exclusive content, like behind-the-scenes videos, live streams, and more. 
If you want to learn more about honeybees and help me to make more content about honeybees to everybody, please visit patreon.com slash insidethehive tv and join our community. Thank you.